You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is the birthday boy, TJ2, the deuce. What up? Hey. Oh, no birthday beer? Yeah. Well, I'm at work, but I was gifted a beer, but um, it's not a twisty and I don't have a bottle opener. So, I mean, I guess I could like lick it and tell you what the glass tastes like. That's about <laughs> as close as I could get. That's, you know what, uh, let's just hold it out for the uh, the next time. So, did you, uh, did you like the way that I rang in your birthday? By texting me once a minute starting at 11 p.m. on the 12th up until and then a bunch hilarious. of hilarious <laughs> a bunch of gifs or gifs or whatever you call them that are just like you're old look here's skeletons because that's essentially what you are now <laughs> i'm the best sister uh, ever uh, happy birthday old fart get <laughs> off my lawn shakes fist at cloud don't worry when we come over for Thanksgiving, I'll bring you some prune juice because I know the older you get, the harder it is to pass things. So don't worry. I'll take care of your yeah. digestive needs. Oh, that's, that's sweet. sweet. Yeah. You drag this out much longer where I might relieve them is in your gas tank. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we jump into the episode, we just want to say there's a lot of people that passed away this week and it's almost too numerous for us to mention here. So what I want you guys to do is head over to our Facebook page, which I will give out at the end of the show, but it's also in the show notes. So if you want to head over to our Facebook page, we have made a posting for just about every single person that has passed. So go check that out. It's a bunch. It's, it's a bunch, a, bunch. It's a lot. This is a rough week for music. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was like, Jeff Cook, Dan McCafferty, Gallagher. Offset. Offset. Yeah. And like two or three other ones. It's been a rough week for sure. Can I, I say been... one quick thing about one of them? Yes. Dan McCaffrey was the lead singer of Nazareth. And the first time I heard Love Hurts, and the, for however long I heard it until I realized otherwise, I thought that that was a chick singing. Oh, Love Hurts, that one? Really? Love Hurts. Sounds like the guy from Cinderella. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they had a female lead singer. I really did. Take Off. Sorry. Not Offset. I apologize. Take Off passed away. And I can't remember, did we mention Coolio? The last time? We did last time, yeah. Okay. Because I'll tell you guys, we just landed in Georgia and we have been moving in and there have been workmen in the house and everything. It's like my brain feels like it is a browser with a thousand tabs open at one time. Well, we had an alarming statistic because as LD pointed out, we moved, we're finally in our house outside Atlanta. And this is the first time since mid-July that we have both been in one place for more than a week. Yes, because last week, yeah. we were not here. We <laughs> went to the Stanley Hotel. And for those who are in the know, that's the Shining Hotel. And I got to spend three days with uh, some of my favorite podcasters from the No Sleep Podcast and Mike Flanagan and members of the Flaniverse. So awesome. I actually got to meet like his wife, and then she did karaoke, and it was amazing. And we had, I mean, I just had a blast. So, yeah. you know, that was, if you guys are not in the know, if you like scary stories, go listen to the No Sleep podcast. They're awesome. But I don't know why I'm driving traffic to them. They've got like a whole network and stuff, but it was a fun weekend. But yeah. Hey, we um, hey, real quick. Also, speaking of other podcasts, 
Uh, I was a guest on the most recent episode of Yeah, Uh Uh-huh. I think all three of us have now been individual guests, and they had all three of us on once. Yeah. Yep. They're an awesome podcast. They must be really hard up for... (laughs) (laughs) I love Lisa, Phil, and Aaron. They're awesome. They're just some of the best people in the world. Don't you know, at a certain point, it had to be like, who we got this week? I, I got nothing. Oh, God, just call the hillbilly and let him talk about Johnny Cash for a while. Because <laughs> uh, that's what we discussed. We discussed Johnny Cash's... Um, Folsom Prison, right? Folsom yes. uh, Prison album. Yep. Oh, and for those of you just tuning in, uh, greetings and salutations. So check that out. <laughs> yeah, uh, just Google Yeah uh-huh podcast and you'll find it. I, I was, I was gonna, not introduced. I was gonna, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I told you I am a browser with a thousand tabs open. But but yeah, like, that statistic is we have not been in one place for more than a week until tomorrow, Monday tomorrow to Monday. will be right? the first yeah. week that we have both been in one place for longer than a week. Since July. We've seen most of the country since July. Yeah, it's been, it's been a ride. If you guys don't know the the guy who just popped a bottle, that's Mr. Will the Thrill, <laughs> who's actually our storyteller this week. This yeah. is going to be an excellent episode. If you guys can't tell, it's my brother's birthday. My brain has short-circuited. I completely forgot I was married for about 20 minutes just now. It's going to be good. So if you're stressed out like I'm stressed out, maybe you should listen to our sponsor. Yes, because stress is real, folks. And if you're stressed out, you could use a little help. Yeah. And that's that's why this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, because everyone, no matter where they are in their life, needs a little help. You can spend hours working on your career or your weight loss or these other things, and they're all important. But really, when was the last time you focused on your mental health? I know that was too long because I was one of those individuals. I was working hard on all the other stuff. And in the end, it just wasn't coming together. I needed someone to help me. Something didn't feel right. And I needed to be able to talk to somebody. Plus, we were in the middle of a global pandemic. So <laughs> casually gesture to that. What I will say, though, is that I was feeling disconnected and that I couldn't talk to just anybody. I needed to find someone who could really hone in on what was getting to me. And that's where better help really change things because BetterHelp will set you up with a therapist tailored to meet your needs and you can talk about whatever you want. What BetterHelp does is actually creates a questionnaire to set you up with a counselor that is simple, easy, and from the comfort of your home. So you can imagine going to therapy without going to therapy. No parking, no using ways to figure out where to go, no traffic, which is real in Atlanta and Los Angeles. And that's why BetterHelp is a game changer for me and it can change your life as well. We are happy to offer you a sponsorship code. That's right. You, our listeners, can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com with our code. You go to that little checkout area and you enter Rock Heaven Again, that's betterhelp.com. Our code is rockheaven, and you can get 10% off your first month of therapy through BetterHelp, because if you have better help, you can have a better life. Excellent. So please, guys, make sure to check out our sponsor, especially with the holidays coming up, knowing how insane it can get. Sometimes you just need to be grounded. So check out uh, BetterHelp, and we'll be putting that code into the show notes as well. So we're almost to the finish line for who, Bear? Lane Staley. Frontman for Alvin Jane's, yeah. A band that uh, I know, LD, you're fairly newly learning about. And TJ, you and I have listened to them for years and been big fans. So hopefully we're going to shine some light on Lane's life. And, you know, in the spirit of everything being kind of wacky, this episode is going to be kind of wacky. There will be some antics, if you will, uh, touring hijinks that will make you laugh. But then there's the other side of this coin, which is very dark. And I'm going to tell you that 
we're going to hit sort of the peak of the roller coaster here. It's going to be very obvious. And then when we come down, overcoming down hard all the way to Lane's unfortunate passing, which as many know is due to addiction. So I want to throw out some trigger warnings right now. Language for this episode, uh, some content may be considered disturbing by some listeners. And of course, the subjects of addiction, drug use, substance abuse, uh, which are all all too prevalent in the world we live in today. And just know that if this is not your thing, please feel free to avoid this episode. Uh, it is hard to talk about. And hopefully, uh, if there is someone who is struggling with addiction or you yourself are struggling with addiction, we encourage you to go seek uh, counseling and treatment to help yourself get better because it can happen. So I do want to throw that out there before we dive into the episode. So let's jump into Lane Staley. And I'm going to start with a quote, a very poignant one. And again, language warning here. Not all junkies are scumbags. Some are lost souls, misguided motherfuckers, or glamour seekers. Lane was the latter. He came backstage and saw our guitar player shoot up. He asked if he could try. I looked him right in the eye. I held up the syringe and I said, are you sure you want to do this? Lane nodded. I feel bad about that because we turned him onto needles and now he's dead. That quote comes from Al Jorgensen of ministry. He said that back in 1989, folks. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I wonder if they carry that weight. Mm. I mean, that's, that's hard. And as we pointed out, the drugs are just running rampant in the Seattle music scene. I mean, a lot of other places. And as we discussed in our last episode, when we started to talk about the Dirt album, this is where Lane publicly through the album and through other means, basically said, you know, I'm done. Like, this is my path and I can't get off of it. So please don't do what I did. In many cases, he viewed himself as a dead man walking, which is emphasized by the Dirt album, which was released, as we know, in 1992. The next few years for the band, again, there's a lot of episode in this episode, guys. There's going to be a lot of internal struggle with the band members. We're going to see someone leave in this episode. So please know by the end, one core member of Alice in Chains it's going to be dismissed. The band would see artistic growth, some highs, and some real lows, as this is the start of Lane losing his battle to addiction. So let's get to the Dirt Tour. It was a key moment for Lane and the band. They were really starting to behave like rock stars in every way possible. They were no longer a headlining act. They were the front runners. The Dirt Tour kicked off late in 1992 off the album release. Alice in Chains brought in a band called Gun Truck to tour with them. This is a band that Lane had actually met during a show in Seattle and actually invited them to come on tour. Gun Truck started around the same time as Alice in Chains, so 1989, give or take. It was founded by the lead singer Ben McMillan and their drummer Norman Scott. Some of their good songs you may know include Tribe, Not a Lot to Save, Push, and Eyes of Stone. The band did break up in 20, in 2002, but they reformed about 14 years later. I think it was 20, uh, 2015, 2016. And Gun Truck still together today. Now, this tour had something that was kind of funny. Ne never heard of them. Gun Truck? Yeah, you can check out their music. Um, they're very much in the same vein as Alice in Chains. Never heard of them. They are a little bit harder, I would say, if that's possible, than Alice in Chains. Almost more metal grunge than grunge metal. I hope you want to look at it. But yeah, uh, definitely worth checking out. And they were touring with Alice in Chains on the Dirt Tour. Uh, the funny thing was, this tour started off with some, shall we say, in illustrious locations. Also, the band was touring in a van at this point, so they weren't exactly flying first class. So the tour became affectionately known as the, quote, Shitty Cities Tour. 
Now, from there, the band was happy to take a back seat because they would get second billing. So wait, it's called the what? Shitty Cities Tour. So like the town we grew up in? I don't think they went to Chester, uh, but they went to some cities that are, I mean, not really, they weren't in New York, they weren't in LA, you know, they were playing sort of second tier locations. I feel like maybe their definition of shitty and my definition of shitty might be a little different. (laughs) Also, the definition of city may differ, so (laughs) take that at face value. Yeah, my idea is a little skewed. (laughs) And we all are. I mean, some people would say, oh, you know, so-and-so Duluth is a city. Well, no, not really. Well, I think technically it has to be... Is it over 5,000 people living within your city limits to be considered a city as opposed to a town? Or, or a hamlet, if you will. Or or, it says, or an unincorporated hamlet, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, hamburger hamlet. Anyway, so from there, the band would actually be glad to take a second billing because they were invited to tour with Ozzy Osbourne. So bear in mind, this tour is broken up. They have the shitty cities tour. Then they go out with Ozzy, and then they come back and finish North American tour with Gun Truck. See, I feel like Ozzy's a really good match for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the audience, I think, would overlap nicely. And plus, Ozzy had said that Alice in Chains is one of his favorite like metal bands of all time. So It was better than the band that they were touring with before. Oh, Extreme? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nuno Betancourt and Alice in Chains. Ay, ay, ay. Tonight, Gary Sharon for the full hour. <laughs> Taking your calls. Taking your calls. So at this point, the band was living up to their rock star reputation. We're going to indulge in some fun antics here. So they were known for closing down the hotel bars in the, quote, shitty cities and then indulging in a few pranks. Drummers Sean Kinney and Scott Norman, um, Norman Scott, I'm sorry, from Gun Truck, would really be out at all hours. One of the things they liked to do was cow tipping, prank calls, and they would actually go through the hotel hallways take out all the sconces, pour beer into them, and then put them back on so when they flip the light switch, they would all blow out. So drink beer, tip cows, and make prank calls. You didn't have to be a rock star to do that. You just pretty much explained my use. (laughs) And I've never had money or been a rock star or anything of the kind. Well, let me ask you this, because this is something Lane did. He broke his foot while riding an ATV at a state fair. Well, I mean, the amount of times I found my brother naked on a tractor, I mean feel like that kind of evens out. That's fair. I mean, my brother pees off the porch. Probably still. Do you still pee off the porch, Travis? Uh, We have neighbors now, so no, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) That is frowned upon. Don't you hate other people? Now you also have a bathroom with a door. So I guess Mm. that makes a difference. Yeah, I guess so. Well, the reason I used to pee off the porch is because from the couch, I would sit on and play Sega and drink beer. It was like eight steps to my porch and 12 to the bathroom. (laughs) That makes a difference. (laughs) So you're working smarter, not harder. Yeah, exactly. Work smarter, not hard, bro. (laughs) (laughs) So the band was certainly, you know, having a good time. Sean Kinney was quoted as saying, as long as I can play drums with a beer in my hand, I'm good. Jerry was always promoting the band in his interviews and obviously, you know, in the side stuff that he was doing. What he said was, we rock the deaf. Our music comes by instinct. If we're not having fun doing it, no one else is going to have fun listening to us. So, fair point on Jerry there. Despite the pranks, Lane remained remarkably humble while on tour. Sure, he indulged in the antics, as we mentioned, driving an ATV, breaking his foot. But he always remembered how Extreme treated them and made sure that he didn't act in the same way. Here's a good example. Every concert they went to had a guest list. Lane's list was never famous people. It was never other musicians. He gave his guest list passes to kids who couldn't afford tickets. So I love that. Yeah. 
According to one of their engineers, a gentleman named Martin Feverier, if I mispronounce that, please excuse me. He actually worked with the Screaming Trees, TJ, a band we've talked about before. He would say that Lane had a pre-show ritual. He said that he would always have whiskey available and he would always have Martin take the first sip. He thought at first this was to check it to make sure it was okay. And he realized it was helping him relax and Lane relax. He always said Lane was a sweet and gentle man. He was quietly spoken, funny and delicate, and he was always attentive to me. So as an engineer, that went a long way. It meant a lot to him. Now, when the drinks would come out and the other substances would come out, uh, some things weren't so great. In fact, Sean had an alter ego named Steve who would come out and basically be violent and disruptive. Substances were very prevalent in the band and they were starting to form riffs. The main one was between Lane and Mike Starr. How much alcohol and or drugs do you have to imbibe before you start having other people inside you? Quite a bit, I'm guessing. Because we've had quite a few of these. Yes. We discussed George Jones. He would Mm -hmm. argue with himself in two distinct voices and personalities. I think Rick James had one. Seems like we covered somebody else who literally had like an alter ego when they got like just absolutely trashed out of their skull. Yep. And that was Sean Kenny. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. So these personalities would emerge. Wait, so that's not normal? I mean, yes. <laughs> so friction between Lane and Mike actually goes back to when they were recording Dirt. Mike was apparently high quite often. Lane was high as well. In fact, there was one time where they were mixing vocals for one of the songs, Fear the Voices. Now, those of you who know Dirt will think, there is no Fear the Voices on Dirt. You're right. It was scrapped. Mike kept saying that Lane wasn't doing it right and kept saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. Lane was furious. So he got to the point where he said, F you, man, I'm not doing this. The song was scrapped. So Fear the Voices was not going to come out until well after Lane's passing when the band released a box set. That was just the start of it. During the tour, their manager, who you remember was Susan Silver, actually said that Mike kept coming to them demanding more publishing rights to the music for Alice in Chains. They always did kind of an ensemble piece, but he wanted publishing rights more than the other band members. Some of the technicians said Mike was let go because due to his issues with substances, he wasn't showing up to practices, he was missing rehearsals, he would be late. And there were even rumors that the record label Columbia wanted Mike out of the band because of this reputation. Now, was this unearned? Uh, This is where it gets dicey. Mike Starr had a bit of a rep. Let's just offer a few stories here. And during the Dirt Tour, Mike actually drank an entire water bottle filled with bleach. Holy crap, how is he still alive? He was rushed to the hospital and they pumped his stomach. Okay, here's a fun story. Fun story! To break this up. T, do you want to tell him about the time I got my stomach pumped? Oh, jeez. I don't remember which time that was. Was that when you drank the gasoline or... When you made me drink the gasoline? Was that when you ate the rancid gas station chicken or... Well, no, that's also your fault, but... um... (laughs) Mom still blames you for that. No, my 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 stomach pumped itself on its own during that chicken. Yeah. Uh, no, the the gasoline when you made me drink the gas. <laughs> you drank it on your own. I had nothing to do with this. Now, perhaps it was not the best idea for us to leave a gas can sitting on the front porch where you could get it. But we didn't even know you'd done it. You came and started talking like, "Damn, your breath stinks." <laughs> Thank God we didn't have a like a lit fireplace. <laughs> oh jeez. I think Mom jeez. was a smoker at that point too. Or that so you weren't old enough to smoke. Hurt. <laughs> that could have all ended very poorly. Yeah, really. That, that could have been, yeah, because her breath reeked of gasoline, literally reeked of gasoline. We called poison control and they were like, hey, um, yeah, you actually shouldn't do that and you need to take her 
I mean, considering the stomach pumping was probably the best way that could have played out. I mean, <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm trying to think of a bladder full of gasoline. <laughs> I mean, uh, how, how about a song? <laughs> <laughs> you pee hole ends up looking like a volcano. I call it Vesuvius. <laughs> so one of the main things that was causing Mike to be put on the outs was he was often, and again, this is perhaps unfair, don't know the, the full story, no bits and pieces. Mike was basically accused of enabling Lane. Oftentimes, Mike was using his contacts to get drugs. He would hook Lane up. It seemed to swing both ways of their accounts where Lane would offer Mike drugs. So I don't know what the reality is. But as we know, substance was very prevalent and the album of dirt is pretty much considered the diary of an addict that's come, coming from Lane. He said that himself. So we're going to do a song off of that, which is among one of the darker pieces lyrically. It's also just breathtaking when it comes to the harmonies and the guitar complexities. So how about we listen to From Dirt, Down in a Hole. Oh, that song is so good.
LD, you said you liked that one. I actually really do. Yeah. I think I like their later stuff, not their earlier stuff. The earlier stuff, I think, was like way too chaotic and heavy for me. And TJ, I mean, that's a banger. It's just awesome. I love it. Banger. <laughs> and it's so dark, too. I If you listen to the lyrics, it's very open about Lane's battle with addiction. I mean, he li- really reads them. It's, it's chilling. And the common misconception is that the line, I want to be inside of you, is sexual. It's not. He's talking to the earth. He's saying, take me back. Like, I'm coming back to the earth, which is really creepy. Mm. So, yeah. And this is the kind of stuff that was coming about during the Dirt Tour. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Lane actually talked about his addiction quite openly. And the fascinating thing, before I give you the quote, is he never blamed anyone else for it. There's a lot of accounts where people will say, oh, it's this person's fault, it's this person's fault, it's Mike, it's Demery, it's the lifestyle. Lane never once blamed anybody. He always took it on himself. Here's a quote. The facts are that I shoot a lot of dope. That's nobody's business but not but mine. I'm not shooting dope now, and I haven't for a while. I took a fucking long, hard walk through hell. I decided to stop. The drug didn't work for me anymore. In the beginning, I got high, and it felt great. By the end, it was just maintenance. Nothing attracted me to it anymore. It was boring. So he's, he's fighting. There's a tug of war going on between Sober Lane and Lane the Addict. And at times, it looked like he was going to get ahead. He would even say in one interview, flirting with death, that's probably the most attractive thing about it at first. It is danger, you know? In another interview, he said, I beat it. I beat death. I'm immortal. And we all know that, sadly, this is a battle Lane would ultimately lose. Now, the band knew about this. They took precautions to help safeguard Lane and and deal with this addiction. One of the things Susan Silver did is arranged a 24-7 bodyguard while he was on tour to prevent anything from getting to him. But that clearly didn't work. There were accounts of multiple people bringing him substances. In fact, in the filming of the video for Rooster, which we played at the end of, I think, the last episode, they said Lane was high the whole time. He was visibly high every time he appeared on camera. Another account actually comes from lead singer of the Screaming Trees, Mark Lanigan. Mark was with the Trees, of course, Queens of the Stone Age. And sadly, folks, yes, Mark is podcast eligible. He actually passed away in February of this year. So, sorry, Mark. Uh, We miss you. He had a severe case of COVID, which actually lasted for almost a year, and he would pass away in 2022, but the cause of death is still not released, which is very interesting. See, that's that's so... I I feel lucky that when we got COVID, it lasted for like six days and the worst part was brain fog. Mm -hmm. Like I could not have handled what we went through for that short amount of time for over a year. Like that's, that is, I would not wish that on anybody. It was awful. Yeah. And Mike, as we know, was also an addict. He was right there with Lane and around this time, Mike Starr, and Lane were kind of imploding on each other. In the Dirt Tour, Mike Starr was actually rushed to the hospital with blood poisoning. Uh, this came after, allegedly, he had shot up with Lane. The band would actually do a tour in South America to a trip to Brazil that was actually quite infamous. And part of this was a collaboration between Lane and Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, which LD did an amazing series on. So they actually brought heroin into the country. This is unreal. Cobain actually arranged for the substances procured them, and Lane chartered a plane to fly it to Brazil. So they flew drugs in. To Brazil! To Brazil! It's just bananas. 
So on New Year's Eve of 1992, Alice in Chains actually got the nod to play the New Year's Eve party for MTV at the famed Roseland Ballroom in New York. Within a month, though, the band would change forever. Mike Starr was actually removed from the band mid-tour. Here's some things as to why. Hey, Will, sorry to cut in on you, but we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. All right, let's get back to Lane Staley. Mike had his own theories on why he was removed from the band. Mike first said that uh, he had told the band he wanted to leave and it was just kind of amicable. Mike also was convinced that Jerry just didn't like him. He said that he always got, quote, more women than Jerry and that annoyed Jerry. Don't know if that was true. He also said that Susan Silver was actually blackmailing Jerry, that she had some kind of down, dirty info on him and consequently pressured him into kicking Mike out of the band. Don't know if any of this is actually true, folks, but these are some of the reasons that Mike had cited in interviews as to why he was removed from the band. Now, those inside the band had accounts of Mike, again, struggling with his addiction. And there were some instances that we mentioned, the bottle of bleach. Uh, There was a helicopter flight that they took in South America where Mike actually threw open the door mid-flight and puked out of the helicopter. He was so sick. Oh, God. Yeah. Mike actually OD'd during the dirt tour. Uh, What happened was, after they would play their final show together in January, Mike shot up. He was clinically dead for 11 minutes. According to Mike, what he remembered was being dragged into another room and being punched in the face repeatedly by Lane, who was over him crying, trying to get him to wake up. So what happened was Mike OD'd, Lane dragged him to the bathroom, threw him in a tub of ice water, and just kept punching him until he woke back up, until the paramedics arrived. According to Mike Starr, he said, I was dead for like 11 minutes. I woke up and I was all wet in a different room. I was in the bathroom with Lane punching me in the face and crying. So kind of shows you what kind of guy Lane is. I mean, he's trying to save the people around him. He deeply cares about Mike. And it's just, it's horrible that this addiction just would get the best of him, you know? Uh, So it was widely known that Lane was an addict. He tried not to let it interfere with the band, but Unfortunately, that was not the case. There was one concert during the Dirt Tour where Susan Silver actually pulled the plug. They said Lane was so high he couldn't perform. He couldn't go on stage. Yeah. Lane had no recollection of this. It was around this time that Kelly Curtis actually stepped away from managing the band altogether. So you had Susan Silver, you had Kelly Curtis, and you had um, Kevin Deans, who were managing the band concurrently. According to Kelly Curtis, he said he couldn't watch Lane do this to himself. In fact, he cited Andrew Wood. He said, I don't want to see him become the next Andrew Wood. Kelly Curtis would go on to say he was a great guy, but there were always dark clouds over him, and it really affected me. Now, some other accounts differ. Susan Silver and Randy Biro say that Curtis's departure was due to creative differences, but Kelly Curtis actually said that he was watching Lane kill himself and he just couldn't do it. So for a combination of all these reasons, Mike Starr was told that he would no longer be part of Alice in Chains. He played the final show with the band on January 22nd, 1993, and as we mentioned, he OD'd shortly after, which he survived, perhaps thanks to Lane. While on tour with Ozzy, because they were going to go out on tour, they needed a bass player. (laughs) They needed to come up with something quick. So Sean Kinney had actually a connection with a gentleman named Mike Inez. He played bass for Ozzy. So it was convenient. Sean Kinney apparently called... Mike Inez and said, hey, can you play can you play bass for us? 
He said, sure. He said, okay, get on a plane. He said, where am I going? He said, Brazil, and hung up the phone. <laughs> That's apparently the conversation that happened. So Mike Inez flies out. Mike Starr is dismissed. And Mike Inez is now the bass player for Alice in Chains. So wait, they ended up getting a new player in the same place where they got the good drugs? Uh, apparently, yeah. Huh. So... There you go. But they have the bass player fly with the heroin. It seems like that would have been more cost effective. I feel like it would be, but I don't think money was an object at this point. I mean, if you think Lane chartered a plane just to bring heroin, I don't think he was concerned about the cost. Please don't make me cry again because I remember my favorite part of this entire story, like the thing I took away from like everything was the fact that Lane could buy Christmas presents and that almost made me cry. So well, I mean, like... You, you, I think the point is you can be an addict and a good person, you know, and that goes back to the quote, from earlier, you know, from the leader of ministry who said that, you know, not all addicts are scumbags. It's, no, it's, was it, yeah. it's absolutely true. And like our ideas now of what an actual addict is have changed. Mm -hmm. I take Xanax every day mm -hmm. just to stay grounded. Am I addicted? I don't sleep as well if I don't take it. But, you know, we look at people who are on heroin and we go, oh, you know, they're throwing their life away. But then you have somebody who like me, what makes me any different than Lane? Yeah. You know, we have these ideas when it comes to addiction. And again, I'm not a psychiatrist. This is just like my life understanding. But like now there's a context now that we put this into that almost makes being an addict of a certain thing acceptable. People are addicted to collecting things. People are addicted to a particular activity. It's, you know, addiction has a lot of different faces. And I think we fail to see the humanity in what we shun. Looking at someone like with heroin or meth, you're like, well, they did it to themselves. No, it was a whole cacophony of things that led them to this point. And it's chemistry and it's nature and it's nurture and it's their environment and what they have availability for. We look at people who are addicted to drugs differently than we look at someone who's addicted to, say, travel. Why is that? Yeah, and I think it's it's true that there's a an understanding. Like, you don't know unless you've been there. You know, what it shows you is there is a an understanding, I think, that only comes from another addict. And I think that's what Lane and Mike deeply shared is they were friends and they struggled with the same thing. And, you know, after the dust settled, as they say, you know, Mike Starr would later talk about his dismissal from Allison Chains. And he would actually say to Dr. Drew years later, he said, when they asked me to leave, it broke my heart. Yeah. And Lane was very disturbed by Mike's departure. He didn't want to kick him out, you know. At the same time, Lane is battling this whole thing himself. So, uh, but the band's got to keep going. Band's got to keep touring, and that's why in 1993, Allison Chains was pegged to headline Lollapalooza. Does everyone remember Lollapalooza? I remember Lollapalooza. Absolutely. I mm -hmm. remember the first year going. I really want to go to this, and then realizing that I hate humans. <laughs> so, pretty much any festival is out. It is still in effect. It's more international now. Than, than in the States, but it does exist. So just to take us back to that simpler time of 1993, I'm going to include some of the acts that performed there, again, for nostalgia. We had Alice in Chains, Primus, Dinosaur Jr., ah. yep, Fishbone, Arrested oh, wow. Development, yes. Babes in Toyland, Tool, Ooh. Rage yeah. Against the Machine, right. Verve, Luscious Jackson, Girls Against Boys, Thirst and More, and Combustible Edison, who were, they were on the soundtrack for Four Rooms, if anyone remembers. Wait, Corn wasn't on no, Lollapalooza? Not on this one. Are they on the Warp Tour? It went on for years and years and years. Yep. 
I was more of the Lilith Fair sort of speed. I'm sure they were eventually, but I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. just not on this particular edition of it, but it went on for a very long time. It did. Yeah. May still, for all I know. Yeah, I have oh, it's still no going. idea. Yeah. Lollapalooza is still going. But I, I did you guys a favor by picking out some of the choice band names from this lineup that I thought were just too good to pass up in our spirit of great bad band names. So try a few of these on for size. Some of the other bands are as follows. Vanilla Trainwreck. Paul K. and the Weathermen. Naomi's Hair. No, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Yep. Paul K. and the Weathermen? And the were Weathermen. They, uh, were they... Formed in 1960 in the <laughs> know, right? basement of their father, who happened to be a barbershop quartet. <laughs> it gets member. better. Oh, God. We have Naomi's hair. Just Naomi's hair. Naomi's hair. The Runties. Banana's the best flavor. The Cocktails. <laughs> Janitor Joe. And I think my favorite from this list was The Vulgar Boatman. <laughs> so, Boatman. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two fun bad, bad names for you. That is amazing. Yeah. And Lollapalooza had over 60 acts on the bill for 1993, which brings us to a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. <laughs> wow. That was, thank you. Alice in Chains actually started as a headliner. They kept that status, but during the tour, Perry Farrell decided to move Les Claypool and Primus up to the status of co-headliner. So that became a Lollapalooza first, folks. The first time we had two headlining bands, 1993, with Alice in Chains and Primus. Primus has one really good song. Oh, come on. They have more than that. No, no. I'm just saying they have one really good one, which is one of this Big, big Brown thing. Beaver. That's a good one. I don't know. It's Big Brown Beaver. I know a band member in, well, not personally, but it's Les Claypool because he did the music for South Park. Yes, he did. Hey, I know a band person. And once trot out for Metallica. <laughs> Which is the best interview letdown of all time. I love that one. Uh, so this is actually similar to a festival that actually happened in Blenheim Park, the idea of multiple headliners. There was an outdoor music festival that took place in July of 1967. There were four headliners on the bill. Jeff Beck, Simon Dupree, P.P. Arnold, and Manfred Mann of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <laughs> So, Tom, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Thank you, Tom. That's the best. (laughs) We are, Tom. Very, very satisfied. Fantastic. This actually proved to be a great time of artistic exploration for Lane, so he was becoming more and more of a lyricist. When Alice in Chains first started, he contributed lyrics. Jerry was really the driving force. As the albums went on, Lane started to write more. Dirt was largely him, and the next album, which I'm going to get to, is a lot of Lane's lyrical handiwork. He also started doing artwork, and that's going to come into play later, and he actually met a number of musicians that would come up later in his life, including Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machines. There was also a romantic connection. Now, if you remember, Lane is technically engaged at this point to Demry Perot. Their engagement is somewhat of a subject of controversy because they had an open, quote-unquote, relationship, but I'm not sure both parties were on the same page of what that meant. And this actually involved a romantic connection with Kat Belland, who was the lead singer of TJ. I don't know if you remember them, Babes in Toyland. She was the front woman for that band. I do. Yes, sir. I yes. Do. So Lane and Kat apparently had a thing while on tour. Demery was not happy about it. 
And it was another gateway for Lane to procure drugs. Now, some say that it came via Cat, some came from other sources. But what ultimately happened is Cat would wind up overdosing while on the tour. She survived. She did not die. But Lane was ultimately blamed for the overdose. And it kind of came around that, oh, you know, Lane's using again and he's trying to get clean this whole time. And it's just, he can't win either way. So on the more lighthearted side, there were, of course, some pranks which I feel need to share to keep things a little lightened before we go over the cliff in a few minutes here. During the Primus set, Lane, Jerry, and Sean all dressed up like Les Claypool and took the stage imitating him while Primus was on stage. So they put on the hat and they started bouncing (laughs) around behind him. And Les Claypool would not let this go unanswered. He actually returned the favor by walking out while Allison James was playing Rooster in a full chicken costume. Which is pretty awesome. Well, wait, uh, quick question. Luscious Jackson, was Kate... Yes. Uh, okay. Beastie Boys Kate, yeah. Yes, Kate's, Beastie Boys Kate. Uh, Schellen- oh, Schellenbach. Kate Schellenbach, thank you. Yeah, drummer. Absolutely. Wow, awesome. I actually remembered something. I retained information, <laughs> you guys. This is... Awesome. This is good. Yeah, Luscious Jackson was kind of her her brain trust there. It's still together from what I understand. Jerry had said that Lollapalooza was the funniest tour he had ever done. Everyone was playing and playing with each other on stage, and it was awesome. There were some more antics, of course. While on tour in Tokyo, Lane actually hijacked a forklift and ripped the sign off of a building. Yep. I mean, who hasn't? (laughs) Exactly. During a show in Stockholm, there was a skinhead in the audience who was apparently attacking people around him and making Nazi salutes and comments. So Lane actually stops the show singles out the guy and tells security, yeah, bring him up. Come on up. Come on up. So Lane's looking at the guy and the guy's looking at Lane. He comes up on stage and Lane yells, quote, die fucking Nazi, die. Punches the guy in the face and knocks him off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's what you get for being a Nazi. Exactly. Yeah. I don't feel sorry for that guy. I think Lane, (laughs) Lane did what everyone wanted to do. So we come to the fall of 93. The touring has died down a little bit. They're going to go back in the studio. Lane has a bit of a different perspective now from working with other artists, but sadly, part of that perspective is also him falling deeper into his addiction. Deciding to make another album was interesting because the band had virtually nothing prepared. They contacted a producer in Seattle named Toby Wright, and the producer said, okay, we'll go to London Bridge Studios. We'll start nailing this down. What songs do you have? And Jerry said, well, funny thing about songs, we don't have any. So they set aside to record an EP, and I think, TJ, you and I will agree, that EP is an absolute masterpiece. Talking about Jar of Flies, folks. The entire album was written and recorded in five days. That's it. It was mixed over the next five days. Now, it's not to say this wasn't without a lot of time put in. The band worked a grueling schedule. They even said that the band was sleeping there at times. Engineers would come in and they would, in fact, come in in the morning to find Lane sitting on the couch in the lobby, eating cereal out of the box and watching cartoons. So apparently he did not leave the studio. And Jerry was no different. He was always in there. He would go home, maybe sleep for a couple hours. But it was just grueling days, five days. And again, the result speaks for itself. Jar of Flies is considered by many to be their most mature album. It is only seven tracks. But I will say those seven tracks are perfect. There's nothing you can take away. And so, folks, their next song is going to come from Jar of Flies. This is probably my favorite Alice in Chains song of all time. I feel no remorse about playing it again. And LD, I know you've heard it a bunch of times, but it is just beautiful in every way a song can be beautiful. 
Let's listen to I Stay Away. God, I love this song.
really, that is just a phenomenal song. Every part of it's perfect. Fight me. <laughs> I, I really, what I love was the tenderness that gets brought in with the violins. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's pretty. Yeah. They brought in a four-piece string section for that one. Well done. Yeah. TJ Which thoughts? just enhances the intensity of the song, really. Yeah. I mean, the blend of the vocal harmonies, the guitar, which Jerry, again, is just a master craftsman at that. And like you said, the just tenderness of the strings and the, the way it swells. It's just, oh, it's just a gorgeous piece of music. It really is. Yeah. And this is where most argue that Alice in Chains is at their peak. This is the best. This is the most mature that they get. And I think there are several layers to look at this. You know, there's two kind of undertoes here when it comes to this album. The first is Lane's Addiction. Obviously, it's becoming more and more prevalent as time goes on. And songs like Nutshell, Rotten Apple, really focus on the corruption of a person, which is directly reflective of Lane being corrupted by the substances he was hooked on. The second is sort of the band starting to pull apart, you know? A lot of this, they say, was actually written between Lane and Jerry as messages to each other. So Jerry and Lane had met, as we know, at a party. They started this band. They're really the core of Alice in Chains. You know, Jerry was concerned about Lane, but he could also see the writing on the wall. Lane was going to fall deeper into his diction. The band was going to suffer. Didn't know what to do there. So the songs, like, if you look at the lyrics to I Stay Away, No Excuses, and Don't Follow, there's really both themes running at the same time. You know, Jerry and Lane are sort of saying their own goodbye to each other. They're saying, you know, we can't keep doing this. We're splitting apart. And many believe that songs like Don't Follow are directly Lane speaking to his audience saying, don't do what I'm doing. Do not go down this path. So it's extremely dark. And like you said, very heartfelt. There's just a sadness to it that's undeniable. Critically, this was the best reception Alice in Chains would ever get. Jar of Flies was nominated for a Grammy. Sadly, didn't win. It's considered one of the best four albums of that year and would reach quadruple platinum status, which means it sold over four million in the U.S. alone. I have a fun fact for you. Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Jar of Flies, like I said, had great critical reception. When it was released, the EP debuted at number one. This is the first time this had ever happened. No one, not even the Beatles, had released an EP that debuted at number one. That is a fun fact. It is. This would happen again, but it would take some time. In 2004, Jay-Z and Linkin Park released a collaborative EP called Collision Course. That one hit number one, but that's a collaboration, which means I think at the time of this recording, Alice in Chains is the only band to have an EP debut at number one. Pretty cool. Interesting. Yep. And I'm happy to say, folks, that I was part of that history. The week this album came out, I went to Sam Goody and I bought it the opening week. So I bought that album when it first came out and I loved it. Wow. Yeah. I will. Yes, sir. Goody's got it. Goody had it. Oh, yes. And then some. Wasn't that their slug line? Goody's got it. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. And that, folks, represents the pinnacle for Alice in Chains. And Dango. <laughs> it's called the Whirly Gig. Oh boy, so strap in because we're about to go over the hill. It's all downhill from here, folks. Because remember, this album came comes out in January of 1994, which was a very difficult time for music. Again, LD, you covered perfectly. Kurt Cobain. Um, March of 94 actually saw Cobain in a, quote, alleged suicide attempt, doing the, the bunny ears here. 
on Rohypnol pills. He was checked into rehab. He was out at the start of April. And as we all know, sadly, on the 5th, Cobain was found dead in his home. Circumstances highly suspect. Highly suspect. Lane was actually outspoken about Kurt's death. They were contemporaries. Lane said, I saw all the suffering that Kurt went through. I didn't know him as well, but I just saw this real vibrant person turn into a shy, timid, withdrawn, and introverted person who could hardly get a hello out. It's chilling. And allegedly, Courtney Love reached out to Lane after Kurt had passed. There is an alleged series of phone calls that happened between Courtney Love and Jim Elmer in an attempt to reach Lane. Why she was contacting Jim? No idea. What is known is that they did share a drug connection, and it is strongly speculated that before Kurt passed, Lane Staley was one of the last people to see him alive. So let that sit for a moment. That's chilling, too. Yeah, it really is. Very much so. Yeah, there was very much a connection between Mark, uh, Lanigan, Kurt, and Lane. They were all kind of together, and some sources say that drug-wise, they were also linked too, which is just incredibly sad. And Lane was trying, guys. He was trying to kick it. He went back into rehab in the summer of 94. Now, Lane had done very well for himself. So he made a lot of money, obviously, with House of Chains. He had an accountant managing his funds. You know, he was by all means successful on the outside. But obviously, on the inside, there were even more struggles. Uh, many of his friends say that he looked, quote, sickly. He did an appearance with Tool earlier in 1994 where he took the stage, but apparently he wore a ski mask to hide his appearance. Even the band Tool said he wasn't looking too great. So take that for what it's worth. He was spotted around Seattle in several places, and we know he had several places that he went in the Queen Anne district of Seattle. Some friends of his says they actually saw him at a local motel. They said the door was wide open and he was cooking something. This is, again, what they observed. And he said, the shit's boiling over. Don't know what it was. Could have been ramen. Could have been something else. Another friend saw him when he picked up a kitten, a kitten that he named Sadie. They said that he got Sadie, and even when they saw Lane, they said he looked pretty bad. Those close to Lane knew that his battle was a losing one. He had stopped attending AA meetings. He was in and out of rehab. Ron Holt, one of his former band members, said that his drug habit was now up to $400 per day. So do the math on that one. Lane obviously had, you know, a lot of pieces in place. So on the books, he had a budget. This is what the budget consisted of. Pet supplies for his cat, groceries, which was surprisingly low, and video games. Lane loved video games. And every time a new game would come out, he would go to the local Toys R Us. He'd pick it up. Apparently, he loved playing games. But unfortunately, the addiction was really starting to take his toll on him physically and with the band. His stint in rehab was unsuccessful, and he fully relapsed in 94. Around this time, the band was scheduled to play with Metallica and then play Woodstock 94, if everyone remembers what that was. Not 99, but 94. 94 was not the bad one. 99 was, right? Yeah, and there's mm -hmm. a really interesting documentary on Netflix, and I want to say it's just called Woodstock 99, but holy crap. Yeah, a lot of bad stuff. 99 is not where you wanted to be. Nope. In 94, Allison Change was scheduled to play with Metallica and Woodstock, and again, Lane just, he was falling apart, and what happened was finally he showed up the day before the tour was supposed to start, and he was so high they couldn't get to the practice session. Drummer Sean Kinney threw his sticks down, got up from the drum set and said, I will never play with this guy again, and walked out. Metallica was, of course, surprised to hear that their co-headliners were not joining them on tour. 
they actually slotted Candlebox in to fill in for Alice in Chains. Which is the first time Candlebox's <laughs> name has been spoken in 30 years. Yeah, say it twice more and they appear. <laughs> I will say that Metallica was less than gracious. During the tour, they would actually start playing Man in the Box. At that point, James Hetfield, the front man of Metallica, would come forward. He would do a very pale Lane Staley impersonation and say, I can't tour, I can't tour. Meanwhile, Lars Ulrich would take his drumstick and pretend to shoot up. Pretty classless, guys. And I'm a Metallica fan. Classy, yeah. Really a dick move, dude. Yeah. These guys are addicts. It's like, they need help, not that. A lot of sources said that Lane's mother, Nancy, got highly involved at this point. Lane had allegedly approached management and said, give me some time off, take care of myself. And apparently, according to Nancy, the management said no. They opposed this. They actually discussed bringing in another lead singer. Nancy said, why can't you hold auditions for a new lead singer to fill in for Lane? Susan's response was, Lane is Alice in Chains, period. Again, this is all suspect. There was allegedly a lawsuit that ended in kind of a weird way in the mid-90s, but it involved Lane's health. Lane really was Alice in Chains, though. And if you haven't learned... Anything else from the series, take that away. In fact, there was a night when he was out cruising with his friend Johnny Bacolis, as we remember, was way back in the sleaze days, as we remember them fondly. They apparently pulled into a parking lot that was full of kids. One of the nearby trucks was blasting No Excuses from the Jar of Flies album. Kids started looking over and seeing this guy in the car and thinking like, is that Lane Staley? Is that Lane Staley? And Lane just stayed quiet. He stayed quiet. Then the chorus kicked in and Lane belted out the chorus, of course, perfectly on point. And everyone shut up. They were like, oh my God, that's Lane Staley. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. It's clear that he was the heart and soul of the band. So instead of touring with Metallica, Lane took some time to try to battle his addiction. He spent some time in the wilderness of Washington where he brought a few friends with him to help kind of, you know, detox. One of them was Johnny, as we mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, the results were not what they had hoped for. Lane actually started drinking excessively in place of the drugs. He started showing signs of depression. He became violent. And he started showing suicidal tendencies, including an attempt to throw himself off of a bridge. Johnny allegedly stopped Lane from jumping off the bridge, and Lane completely broke down. In a visit to a local grocery store, he hauled off and punched a stranger just because the person looked at him weird. So Lane was clearly becoming unhinged. He needed professional help. But Colas said, okay, I'm going to help this guy out. I'm going to move in with him, and I'm going to help him get clean. So in the fall of 94, they moved in together. At first, this seemed like a good idea, but Lane just kept continuing down that path. He couldn't, he just couldn't. And then finally, he turned to Johnny and gave him two ultimatums. He said, you can live with me under these two terms. No more interventions and no more listening to Alice in Chains in their place. He wouldn't let him do it. Lane said, I'm not ready to quit. Don't even try to force me. And with that, it's largely believed that this is the point where Lane fully surrendered his addiction. If you think that's dark, wait till next week, dear listeners, because we're going to focus on the final years of Lane's life. So, I felt bad about assigning everybody a set list from hell. I'm going to hold you to it, but please know you have a little bit more time than anticipated. Next week, we are going to focus on the last few years of Lane's life and an utter tragedy which just brings him to his knees, and we're going to actually follow that up with a postscript episode. So we rarely do this, but we're going to have Lane's passing and then a postscript episode, which will be a little bit shorter, but it's going to really focus on what happens next because a lot happens after Lane's passing and a lot involves his bandmates. So I do want to focus on that and Allison Chain's becoming 
what they are today. So you got a couple more weeks. Folks, remember the homework is your top five Alice in Chains albums in any order. You can just give them as they are. They can be new ones. They can be old ones. Unplugged is on the table. And then, of course, our set list from hell, which is going to be a total of 36 songs. You get four by Alice in Chains, four by Pearl Jam, four by Soundgarden, four by Nirvana, four from side projects, which can include everything from Mad Season, Jerry Cantrell's solo work, the Foo Fighters, because they're attached to Nirvana, Temple of the Dog, and then four Dewar's Choice. So it's going to get heavy, guys. It's going to get real heavy. That's not going to happen. Well, um, just, on, just on my, do your best. <laughs> I mean, if my teachers couldn't get me to do this, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> final thoughts on the episode before we close out? If somebody wants to write mine for me, that would be awesome. <laughs> you can help LD online. Go to our socials. Anyway, um, so any <laughs> thoughts on this episode before we move into? I know we're ending on a very dark note, and I hate to tell you it's going to get a lot darker. I will say this, just to end it on a lighter note, I really like their sense of humor. <laughs> Other than like pouring the beer in the sconces, it's pretty much just like high school antics. And for some reason, that just, it humanizes them so much to the point where I'm just like, I like these guys because they have a good sense of humor. Yeah, they're goofy. So that's me. And then I like them as they mature as musicians. I think Dirt and Jar of Flies are awesome albums. I'm, I have a growing appreciation for them. Of course, this isn't my genre. You guys know I'm, I listen to Broadway musicals and Hanson. And that's pretty much it. And podcasts. But I have a growing appreciation for them, just like I have a growing appreciation for Soundguard, not Black Hole Sun, <laughs> but... Chris Cornell has an incredible voice and it's just like it finding that beauty and that artistry in some place that I would not necessarily seek out my musical flavor. And, and that's TJ, all I have to say about that. Thoughts? They're absolutely in their sweet spot musically. I mean, this continues a run that is, if you go back and listen to it now, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, as good a, a couple of album run as anybody had, especially on this kind of music. It's just sad because the, the seeds have been planted for, for, for how this is going to end. You know, and you know, we, we all know how it ends. All of our series uh, end a particular way, unfortunately. It just leaves me thinking like, they are one of many bands. I just think, gosh, how might music have been different? I mean, the world of music, if they just stayed clean. Yeah. Incredible music, but we'll never die. It's sad. Really is. Yeah. So, LD, would you like to close out our business and we'll do a song on the outro? Sure. If you think that we're doing a good job, you can hit us up on Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can check out our Twitter at rockandrollLT, our Instagram, rockandrollheavenLT, our Facebook, rockandrollheavenpod, still not saying our website. You can also check out our TikTok at rockandrollheavenpod. That's all one word. You can also email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And you can also go check out my other show that I help produce, and that's called Basic. We got some awesome shows coming out in the coming season. So I hope you guys check that out. And please make sure, this is our Christmas wish. If you're listening to this right now, if you could just take a couple minutes to head over to the Apple Podcatcher and leave a rating and a review. It just helps drive traffic to our show, helps them find it. We're trying to get our rating back up to like a 4.7. So if you can find it in your heart this holiday season to leave us a five-star review, we would love that. 
And that's pretty much all I have to say. All right, cool. So we'll do our closing song. I guess we say our goodbyes first, then I'll just that final song. Hey, TJ. Bye, everybody. All right. And from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, to all of you guys out there, I hope you have a safe and wonderful week. We will see you guys next week for Lane Staley Part 7. And then I do believe we'll have a Slap Nuts. Mm-hmm. Then it'll be the holiday season. So we'll have a little bit of a weird hiccupy season. But you know what? If you've come to expect consistency from the show, what are you even doing with your life? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, I will pass this back over to Will. We love you guys so very much, and we'll see you next week. All right, awesome. Thank you all for listening. Again, I know the subject matter is going to get real dark. I think it's important to focus on the main themes here, which are, of course, people struggle with addiction every day. And as we talk about it, addiction is just absolutely a beast. It's horrifying, and it ruins lives. If you or someone you love is struggling with addiction, know that there are sources out there that can help you. You can certainly look at those in your local area. There is also the Lane Staley Foundation based in Seattle, Washington, to help people who are struggling with addiction. It was created after his passing, and it's dedicated to that cause. So we encourage everyone to please be safe. Please take care of yourselves. And we'll close this one out with one of my favorite songs from the Jar of Flies album. It's definitely one of the more, shall we say, introspective ones. It's sad, it's haunting, and it's beautiful in every way a song can be. So as we say goodbye this week on Rock and Roll Heaven, please enjoy Don't Follow from Alice in Chains. Thank you.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.